May we bow our heads as we stand. Lord, we have already recognized the call from you to prepare the way of the Lord. And we ask that as we prepare the way of Christ, it may be in response to your word. And so give us understanding hearts and minds this morning, we pray. Amen. Do please sit. More than most Christmases, I've been brought to thinking this year about the why of Christmas. We've got Good Friday, we've got Easter. So what's going on at Christmas? We all know the danger of sentimentalising it by saying, well, it's really all for the kids. What's really going on? Well, let's start with the A11. If you've been any distance down the A11 recently, you'll know that the next stage is going on of dueling that road. Uh, And it goes on at all times of day and night through the week. About the only thing that would get it moving more quickly would probably be the announcement, admittedly the unlikely announcement, that the Queen was visiting Thetford. Would you please turn to Luke chapter 3 and verse 1. Page 1029 in the Church Bibles. Because John the Baptist would have understood such a scene. He knew a thing or two, as did Isaiah the prophet, about straight roads. When royalty wants to travel, roads get built and everything else gets flattened. If you look at uh, verses 4 through to 6, then the bit that you have in quotes is a quotation from the prophet Isaiah. And the language draws on the way that in those days, uh, royalty processed through their empires. They didn't leave home very often, but when they did, a triumphal way would be established and nothing would get in the way. Uh, There's a proposal at the moment to make Essex Street two-way. What fun that's going to be. Um, uh, But if that comes to pass, uh, you can guarantee that there will be a long and difficult process about which trees need protecting and about which car placements uh, will be allowed to remain. But there was no such doubt, uh, no such planning authority in the days of uh, John the Baptist. You wanted a road, you got a road. Or in the days of Isaiah, the emperor wanted a road, the emperor got a road. It was a signal of the emperor's power that everything in the way is simply flattened. When everything natural is curved and crooked, it's a sign of tremendous power to be the one who can say, flatten it out. And if anyone had the right to have hills flattened, 
in the days now of John, no longer of Isaiah. It was the Roman emperor, Tiberius Caesar. He was mad at this point and involved in a reign of terror. Or look at the others in those first few verses of chapter 3. Herod. Herod is the one who will put John the Baptist in prison, and he will blaspheme the faith. His brother, Philip, was someone who favoured the Gentiles over against the people he was supposed to be there for, the Jews. Annas and Caiaphas are high priests who will oppose Jesus. Pilate, most obviously, will condemn him to death. These are the power figures. For generations, the Jews have had to put up with rulers, power figures, concerned for everyone except them, the Jews. And that's why Luke sets it up in this way. When all the bad guys are there, something else goes on. Since the Jews had come back from exile a few hundred years before, they had lived under more or less continuous occupation by one empire or another. Now, that wasn't what they had understood the promises of return from exile to mean. And if something was wrong about this picture, there were beginning to be Jews saying, well, it must be our own fault. It's always a temptation, isn't it? When life is rough, you blame it on the other people. But finally something was getting through, and they were beginning to say, actually... Maybe what's gone wrong is not other people. Maybe it's us. They had this sense of needing to be in a new relationship with God, as though God had been using these years of oppression and occupation to talk to them and say, sort yourselves out. That's the Jews on the one hand. Now, that awareness, that rising awareness, then meets... John the Baptist. He is the cousin of Jesus, as you'll remember from the earlier stories. He's grown up with Jesus. He's grown up with an atmosphere of promises and angels and weird stuff going on. And he has a sense that this is the hinge point of the eras. What, that what God had promised was finally coming to pass. So he goes out to the Jordan River and starts to baptize. But this is what's going on. You have the sense of the need for a new relationship, meeting John. Now, in those days, baptism was the way, not, what, not, not, not at all what our baptism is, but it was the way in which a non-Jew could be treated, could come to be treated as a Jew. So when John is going out into the desert, he is saying... Listen, oh my fellow Jews, you have to recognize that you have not been proper Jews, so like Gentiles coming to baptism, you are to come to baptism in repentance for that and be proper Jews for the first time. He's using something that was actually a Gentile instrument 
and applying it to Jews so they would repent, so they would be recognized as longing to get back to a proper relationship with God. And he it is who speaks of this road. He's quoting Isaiah, the prophet, who lived before the exile. But but, uh, Isaiah expected both the exile and then the return from exile in which the Jews are still living, some hundreds of years later. Isaiah puts himself in the position that seems impossible. Not only, this impossible from before the exile, not only will the people return from the east to which they've been exiled, but God himself will come ahead of them, returning in triumph on a straight road to the land of promise. God is the one who's the emperor in this scenario. The Lord has been with his people in exile, and now he comes from the east in the manner of a mighty emperor. He comes in triumph over the road built for him, in triumph and in blessing, and everyone will see that it is he who is glorious. That was the prophecy. So imagine what it must have felt like to be a Jew in, the la- in Jerusalem, say, in the time of Tiberius Caesar. It does not feel like God has done this magnificent thing and come from the east and acted as our saviour. Okay, we, we kind of got out of Babylon, but it's been a disaster ever since. It doesn't feel like the promise. But now, here comes John saying, I know it doesn't feel like the promise, but Jesus is the promise. He's coming. And this Savior will be the fulfillment of all the things that have not been fulfilled so far. John speaks, and Luke adds his own little twist of meaning to the prophecy from Isaiah and to John's words. So, Verse 4, a voice of one calling in the desert. Well, John is calling in the desert. Prepare the way for the Lord. We know, because we've seen, we've listened to the rest of the gospel story up to now, that the Lord, the Christ, is coming. All mankind, verse 6, will see God's salvation. Well, that word salvation has been at the heart of of what we've heard already from Luke about the shepherds in the song of Zechariah that we've just sung. But there's more even than that because Luke again and again in these early stories will pick up this sense of inverting the normal order, turning it upside down. And he does it by taking descriptions of something external and making them internal. So, Verse 5, every mountain and hill will be made low. If you go back to the uh, words of Mary in her song when she rejoices to have been told about Jesus, she talks about uh, God has been mindful about the low state of his handmaiden. The, the, what 
Isaiah saw as this externalized fact. Every mountain and hill made low has become internalized as Luke tells the story and says, God has set himself on the low estate of a, of a woman. Or again, uh, this is very Luke, uh, verse 5, the crooked roads shall become straight. When Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost, Luke records him as telling the, the people in front of him that they are a crooked generation. The crooked that Isaiah saw as a, a crook, crook in the road, Peter sees as a crook in the heart. And the way Luke arranges all this tells us a great deal about these early chapters and therefore about Christmas. Most obviously, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, all of those names... The obvious builders of roads are the powerful and the mighty. Those who were in charge of the public realm, civil, military, religious. But the truth here is that nothing good is going to come from them. While they are busy in their palaces, the word of God is on the wind in the desert. So what's going on here? is a no from God to all those who set themselves up as public authorities without his blessing. And in response to that, there's an obvious thing that we do as Christians. We look at John in the desert, baptizing all these people for for repentance, one at a time, and say, oh, it's one at a time, it's all very personal. And we might say, well, it is the way of God to move personally and privately, far from the public realm of the bad guys. Something good is going on in the desert, and it's a matter of the private heart, not a matter of public power. And there is some truth in it. What John was offering wasn't Christian baptism as we understand it. That's, that's an incidental connection. But what he offered was personal And it was individual, and it was in a different world from Jerusalem, the temple and all of that, even though it wasn't far away. And yet, if we take that view, it leads straight to the thinking of Chuka Umuna, the shadow business secretary. I was horrified to hear him say recently that religious people should, quotes, of course, be free to practice their religion privately in places of worship and at religious events. Be free to practice their religion privately in places of worship and at religious events. Is that what you think you're allowed to do in this country? Please, God, no. There is someone who has no idea how faith actually operates. Boxes and boxes and boxes went out from here the other day to be some clients across the city. It wasn't a religious event or private, but it was a declaration from the heart of this congregation that this our God is Lord of all circumstances 
not the merely private. What's scary is that the view I just quoted might one day, arguably already today, be in government. It is possible that John could have had a ministry that said the politicians and the military, Tiberius, Philip, Herod, the lot of them, they're, they're all a waste of space, all corrupt, never mind then. Come over to the Jordan and learn of God's peace as you return to him. It's a soul-pleasing break from the rigors of the real world. Here we are, surrounded by thick church walls, drawn aside on a Sunday from our Monday to Friday existence to think about nice things, look at trees and lights, and how important it is to have a spiritual dimension. And yet Luke is careful to frame it in such a way that that is a simply impossible way of looking at the life of faith. Chuka omuna, read and learn. The quotation from Isaiah is drawn precisely from the world of the mighty and powerful, because there was no one more powerful than the emperor. As of now, says Isaiah, the real triumph belongs to God, not to the emperor who is on borrowed time. Why would Luke go to the trouble of listing all these powerful people at the beginning of chapter 3? if the real action is in the, des- in the desert, is in some sense hiding from those realities, escaping from them. Why pick up on the promise that when God acts to come in triumph and rescue his people, verse 6, all mankind will see God's salvation? This is not about a private spiritual party for the few. And God forgive us if we collude in this pressure that is quietly but insistently coming upon us to sentimentalize and privatize and become a a sect. It is, on the contrary, a massive demonstration that God has been faithful and is rescuing his historic people. It's not about escaping the mighty and the powerful. It's about overthrowing them. This is Luke, who records Mary singing, he has brought down the mighty from their seat, brought down rulers from their thrones, and lifted up the lowly. Maybe government ministers do understand after all, and what they say is not blindness, but fear of a rival claim to be Lord. And the overthrow begins in the desert. What do we do with this upside-downness? It runs deep in these early chapters. It is what the kingdom of God looks like before Jesus has words to preach with, which means that when he does preach the kingdom, these earlier years can become the perfect illustration of what the kingdom means for all time. It's not just about Christmas. There is an inversion. There is meant to be an overthrow of how life is for most of us. 
Not something from which we return to normal life in January, having said, ah, but a permanent state of affairs in which Tiberius is not Lord, Pilate is not Lord, Herod is not Lord, Caiaphas and Annas are not Lord. The Lord is Jesus. There was a piece in the independent newspaper on Thursday from its editor, praising the work of both Pope Francisco and Justin Welby, and talking about some of the growth areas in the life of the Church of England, recognizing that we grow when we are confident of what we have to take to the world. The demand from outside is that what we should offer is a private consolation. And sadly, the truth can be that that demand comes from within church congregations sometimes, as much as from government ministers. But God is not interested in a consolation privately that does not rest on public fact. God has once and for all taken human flesh upon himself. And that forbids to his people any kind of sentimentalizing that simply gets us through the week. Rather, it demands of us that we express our confidence publicly and, yes, maybe in fresh ways. And I suggest that's in two areas that are uh, are locked up in our reading today. First, and this one we forget... Who is it that is not Lord? It is, after all, much easier to have a conversation over the garden fence about Tiberius Caesar, that is the European Union, than about Jesus, about Pontius Pilate, that is the wicked government, than about Jesus, about Herod, that is the monarchy, than about Jesus. But we can have the conversations. They're easier. And we can make it clear that we do not believe that these are Lord. And we can find out from the person with whom we're in conversation who they think, what they think is Lord. And we can say no to that too, but gently. Because it's all on the way to the second thing, the declaration that once and for all, once and for all, Everything has been turned upside down. Of course, it's easier to say it than to live it. It's much more comfortable to live in Jerusalem with Herod as king than with the camel-haired Baptist in the desert. But that's our calling. Where is the place of desert for us? Where this truth begins to be lived out, the place of inversion, where we are called to live by observably and publicly different rules from the rest of the world? Yes, it's a question. This is one of those places, but it can only start here because those walls are thick. It's not an answer. If we want sentimental answers and rules to live by, then that's a frustrating question. But whoever said it would be comfortable?
Let's pray. Lord God, we give to you our own times when we have we've wanted Jesus to be private, our own private Christmas, our own private saviour, our own private escape from a world that is difficult. And we ask that where we suffer from that, you may turn us from those who seek escape into those who know that you have in Christ overthrown every other authority. Not just the ancient ones, but the ones we know today. Give us confidence in our hearts as to who is not Lord and who is. And may we take that confidence into the worlds we shall know this Christmas. When we go to others, when others come to us, and as we return to work after holiday, in the public world around us, may we carry the truth that John preached in a desert. Amen.